on behalf of Adobe and Kerasoft, we would like to welcome you to today's podcast focused around enabling the mission with digital experiences, where Dr. Simon Pincus, Chief of the Connected Health Branch at the Defense Health Agency, Steve Wallace, System Innovation Scientist of Emerging Technologies Directorate at the Defense Information Systems Agency, Amy Tyra, Jella Program Manager at Kerasoft, and John Landwehr, VP and Public Sector CTO at Adobe, discuss how COVID-19 has accelerated the demand for digital experiences and virtual outreach at the Department of Defense, and how digital operations are critical to force readiness. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining our event today. We greatly appreciate DHA, DISA, and Kerasoft for participating in this session on enabling the mission with digital experiences. So we're going to start our panel uh, with Dr. Pincus and Mr. Wallace, and we should probably start by looking back at this past year. So like most of the nation, the Department of Defense underwent a dramatic shift in how it operates. Uh, Let's start by talking about what impact that had on digital services and virtual outreach and communication with your constituents. Um, Dr. Pankus, how about we start with you? Great. So for the Defense Health Agency, obviously, delivery of care during COVID-19 was was a paramount um, priority. Uh, And one of the challenges, of course, is uh, keeping people safe. And before we had the vaccine, um, delivering care virtually, either through uh, uh, enabled social distancing and safety for both patients and providers. Um, our patients reported that they were very satisfied, um, on, for the most part, with receiving their care virtually, uh, and it was also convenient. So um, I would say that because of COVID, we actually have really had an acceleration of the, of the use of synchronous virtual health. Great. Mr. Wallace, what are your thoughts? So uh, first, thanks. Uh, yeah, the, the past year, what now, uh, 14 months, it was a dramatic for the department. We went from an organization, and, and we are probably being generous uh, when I say a federated organization, uh, but, but we went from the large majority of our folks being on site and, and interacting on a daily basis to a, you know, instantly or near instantaneously scattered workforce. So that meant you know, a lot for organizations in terms of, you know, being telework ready at, at DISA specifically. Uh, we were actually in pretty good shape uh, from go, um, but there, you know, not everybody was uh, as as fortunate, and, and we had to make some adjustments as we went. Even at DISA, there there still were a lot of adjustments that we needed to make. You know, one of our one of our biggest things that, that we've been talking about since then is the stand-up of our CBR environment, the commercial virtual remote environment. Uh, that we stood up and, and like, like, you know, when we all first started out in the, in the pandemic, it was only supposed to be three months and, and here we are over a year later and, and that's still operational, but, but that will be coming to a close before long. But it, it also drove us to better adopt, you know, interactive collaboration technologies. Uh, you know, we had them, we had some of them already, but this really stepped up and um, really increased our reliance on it. It's going to be interesting, I think, over the next six to nine months as people start to return and we move from, you know, that pendulum starts to swing back. You know, it went from one extreme to another extreme. And as it comes to the middle and you actually have people that are both in the office and out of the office at the same time, you know, how we can also leverage those technologies as well as others to to help us continue to be collaborative and, and effective moving forward. Right. 
Dr. Pincus, the, the Connected Health Branch has digital services at the core of its mission. Um, how did your priorities change over the past year, and, and what were your biggest learnings and, and takeaways with the big shift to digital? Right. Actually, you know, our priorities did not change. It's just the pace at which those priorities were implemented. You know, our, our goal really is across the military health system to improve health uh, care and readiness of the military uh, through technology. And so, obviously, we would like to be um, the, the provider of choice uh, on connecting our beneficiaries with health care. So some of the changes that we saw were that primary care and behavioral health really significantly increased their syn- synchronous virtual health uh, usage. And many other specialties, especially ones that don't really rely um, on needing a physical exam, also um, began using uh, virtual health, some for the first time and and some just expanding their use. So like Steve has just mentioned, as we, you know, hopefully get to a a place where COVID-19 allows us to return either to the workplace, to our, our healthcare providers, or back to school, it, I don't see it going back to where it was pre-COVID, especially in healthcare. I think the question prior to COVID-19 really was what care could we do virtually and still maintain the same standard of care? Now the question is what care needs to be seen in person because virtual care is so so convenient for many patients and preferred. And if you could imagine a, a patient having to, uh, um, you know, let's say they're a parent, have to drop off their child in daycare, then go to, then drive to the, the provider or the healthcare team, and then um, uh, see their provider and then do the reverse, you know, that, that takes uh, many hours of the day and is often uh, makes healthcare inaccessible. You know, one of the things that, that as Dr. Pink was talking, that, that I was sort of thinking of in the same vein as, as they're rethinking um, how we approach healthcare, and I mean, it's, it's not exactly healthcare, but, but you know, how, how we approach our interactions going forward and, and, you know, talking about shifts back towards the one both people being, you know, in and out, you know, just as they're rethinking their experience from the, you know, seeing patients and, and, uh, and, and, you know, interacting with uh, both the healthcare providers as well as the patient, you know, we're rethinking our experiences internally to our facilities of, of how people collaborate and, and that type of thing. It's, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be all cube farms that, you know, these uh, shared work areas and, and uh, rethinking conference rooms, that kind of thing, uh, you know, across the board, just, just you know, that, that entire experience is, is going to be very important to us going forward. Great. I know uh, our family has certainly benefited from doing uh, virtual care visits over the last year, that sometimes you just have quick questions, and uh, it's nice to be able to, to reach the experts quickly. And I think the same thing also does apply to other types of work, that, uh, you know, what may have been a long walk across a campus or to different buildings can now be accomplished very quickly with uh, virtual visits in a uh, an office environment as well for IT questions and other things. So, uh, I think there have, there have been some nice benefits that have come out of this that I think we, we hope continue. Um, why don't we talk a little bit more about some of the, the technical and management uh, perspective that you encounter as you're working to integrate online collaboration and engagement processes. Uh, I think some of the, the management perspective is especially interesting because a lot goes into the technology and there are a lot of moving pieces and 
getting cameras and audio and systems configured, network bandwidth and all of that uh, certainly can be tricky, but there's a lot more to it. Um, Dr. Pincus, your thoughts? Interestingly enough, I just experienced what one of the things that happens with uh, synchronous virtual care, which is sometimes there is a break in care. And uh, this is, an, is a new sort of domain for folks to become comfortable with troubleshooting uh, both providers and patients. And so there's a learning curve associated with it. And being flexible and being patient uh, become kind of a priority and also having a backup plan. Uh, so, for example, if a synchronous virtual visit um, uh, fails because of a bandwidth issue, then maybe you'll go to an auditory or a telephone call. So then you need to know um, what, what their uh, phone number is and, and make that connection. And then there are other ways that you could possibly communicate as well that are asynchronous, such as secure messaging. So there are multiple ways uh, to communicate with patients. Um, and if you, as a provider, and, and I am a, a, a psychiatrist, as, as a provider, if you work through that and, and make your patients comfortable, uh, they generally will accept uh, this as, as, a, as a reasonable way to receive care, and sometimes they even prefer it. That's great. I know uh, I appreciate when I've uh, engaged with folks where they say, you know, if we get disconnected, can I get a phone number to call you right back? And it's like, wow, that's, that's nice to hear when you're calling for support or care that uh, calls do drop or other calls come in and then get dropped in the handoff and all of that. So having those backups, I think, are, are important. Mr. Wallace, your thoughts? It, uh, absolutely, and, and real-time communications are are a very you know they're they're a very challenging service to to deliver and operate and you know maintain behind the scenes. And you know the user experience is is paramount. And when the user experience is an issue for any number of reasons, they they you know rightfully so blame the service. But it could be any number of things along the along the path between that that user and and the service that's ultimately being provided. That's, you know, one of the lessons that we've learned over the years is is it's not necessarily, you know, when especially as we start to move into more cloud and SaaS-provided services, um, you know, we, we move those services physically further from the user, you know, things like path diversity and, and that kind of thing are, are even more critical because when you do have latency or, or interruptions or that kind of thing, that ability to reestablish without, the, you know, with the least amount of friction to the user is, is ultimately key, uh, you know, to keeping them happy and, and, and maintaining a uh, consistent service. And I imagine it's been quite a, quite a shift because, you know, typically the IT environment supporting users has been fairly rigid and well-known and controlled within the building's walls. Uh, no matter what the kind of system it is, and you know how much bandwidth you've got on your core LAN getting out to all the workstations, and you know exactly what software everyone's running, and, and now reaching out to folks in other places, uh, at least their underlying hardware and operating system may be very different, and uh, all sorts of different bandwidth connections with coax and copper and fiber and satellites and everything else going on. So that there are a lot of moving pieces uh, to make all this happen. Um, so as we kind of look forward a little bit, how can the DOD continue accelerating uh, this shift toward digital experiences? I mean, it's been going so well, and it seems like there's strong momentum to keep continuing. So as you look at, you know, all of your constituents internally as well as externally, are there certain services at your agencies that are 
you know, most prepared for a continued digital engagement. Um, Dr. Pincus, why don't we start with you? So behavioral health has always uh, done very well with, especially a defense health agency for tele-behavioral health. Um, what we really witnessed was uh, primary care and other specialties, um, especially specialties um, that don't need a, often don't need a direct physical exam, uh, also found an acceleration in their use of, of virtual health technologies. But it isn't just, you know, synchronous virtual health. There's a whole array of, of health care that can occur in the, digital, in the digital space. So, for example, um, one might have remote health monitoring. Uh, one of the things that happened in COVID uh, was the, uh, remote health monitoring where patient who might not need admission but is not necessarily fully out of the woods could potentially have their pulse oximetry or their vital signs uh, monitored 24-7. And if they had a, a, a decrement in their care, they could be brought very quickly back into treatment. So there's uh, that, you know, we've been using um, glucose, uh, continuous glucose monitors for some time now, but now the ability, again, to, to monitor that, that either intermittently or in real time are new capabilities uh, that we have. One of the really interesting developments has been the explosion in our telecritical care footprint. Um, we've expanded to numerous military treatment facilities. And as, as you might imagine, with, with COVID-19, the ability to surge intensive this uh, uh, ICU physician-type support to a place where there might not be enough has, has been a real game-changer. When you think about that kind of capability, and you're really thinking about how does that affect military readiness when you can really apply not only, you know, in the continental United States, but even overseas, you can apply these kinds of technologies in real time and get specialists to provide care even directly to the battlefield. That's great. I've, uh, I've been personally intrigued with uh, a number of the connected health devices that are now consumer-friendly that you can pick up at various places, you know, whether they're connected Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or standalone for even things like uh, swiping your forehead for temperature and having it automatically record to your phone, all sorts of, uh, of other interesting tools that you can plug in. And, uh, of course, uh, security and privacy is important, but you know, having that information so quickly available that can be shared uh, appropriately with providers, uh, I think is very interesting to see how we can kind of continue to do more remotely in other places. So, you know, with the, the mission experience, of course, at the, the heart of the DOD's digital service, and it's so critical to empowering everyone to be a part of that mission success, whatever their mission happens to be, what are the top priorities and challenges at your agency for improving digital experiences for your personnel, uh, Mr. Wallace? Sure. So, you know, with our improvement internally, we're looking at a number of things. We're, we're looking at, at, at how do we, just like in your personal lives, you know, as we've seen over the last year, I think as we've described, uh, as Dr. Pinkins has described on the, on the medical side, um, not necessarily having as many personal interactions or requiring the user to jump through as many hoops. We're, we are looking to how do we, you know, refine the user experience for how they interact or things, you know, like help desk requests and, you know, being more self-service oriented, um, better communication to the user in terms of, you know, service status, that kind of thing, so that they don't necessarily have to go look or search or, 
um, you know, ask questions when certain things come up. They can they can handle a lot, a lot more on their own. Um, the other side to it, not just for our folks at DISA, but for the department in general, you know, as we've seen this shift and, and people move about, it, it, it really started, while the last year and a half has been fairly dramatic, you know, this, this shift in IT really started 10 plus years ago. You know, as, as data started to move about and data started to shift into different places, it wasn't necessarily centrally located on, on Nippernet anymore. It was, you know, it was moving about. It was in the cloud providers, that kind of thing. And now we're seeing the users become more mobile and want to use different devices and, and uh, you know, not the same, you know, government equipment that they've always been issued. Um, and, and, and a lot of the capabilities are We've been there for some time, but we're now finally able to, to integrate them into something a bit more cohesive so that, you know, traditionally we would backhaul that traffic into Nippernet via VPN or, or whatever and then send it where it needed to go. And, and in many cases, it's not terribly beneficial. Uh, and, in fact, it's, it takes away from the user's experience because you're adding, you know, latency and, and more opportunities for things to break along the way. So we're starting to look at how do we better provide those services uh, remotely uh, without necessarily having to backhaul the traffic. There's a there's a number of categories uh, out there in terms of you know next generation perimeter technologies that we're taking a uh, taking a good hard look at and figuring out how we can integrate them into the enterprise. And so again, it, it it's to the benefit of the DISA folks, but really the broadly the department as well. We uh, we appreciate that work. It's a, a cloud service provider that has taken. Uh, some of our clouds through the, the DISA IL-4 accreditation uh, process uh, that, uh, you know, as is, is there's more interest in getting uh, applications quickly delivered from commercial clouds, um, and I'm certainly looking at the end-to-end, -end, all the pieces is very important, uh, and it's great to hear that uh, things like bandwidth and experience and all that tie in. Um, Dr. Pincus, your thoughts on this topic? Um, well, user experience is key, right, to adoption, and it's key to adoption both on the part of the healthcare providers and the healthcare teams, as well as the patients. But where there's a will, there's a way, and, and so uh, our patients are our beneficiaries, whether they be active duty or, or uh, you know, retired or family members, they're pretty savvy. Um, a, a medical visit doesn't look like it used to. Um, they often come in having uh, done a uh, web search um, or gone to social media about a, a condition that they might have. They may know something about the treatments already. Sometimes they even know more than the provider does when they walk into the room, uh, especially if they have a condition that is uh, more rare. Um, and then almost the patient becomes the expert. So in that environment, there is this, this expectation, and it's a very high expectation, that everything is going to integrate and work uh, or be interoperable, like from the get-go. And that is, the ch that is one of the challenges. Um, for, for DHA, we are rolling out an electronic health record that integrates inpatient and outpatient uh, and also integrates across uh, with uh, labs and rads and, and and eventually we'll integrate with scheduling. And then how do you make that work for the patient? Do you have a patient-facing app where the patient can now potentially on their smartphone access all of this? Can they secure message their provider um, so that they're not waiting for a phone call or return? 
if it if, if they develop a rash on the new medication, can they just take a picture and store that picture forward? And in that environment, the challenge then is, is one of trying to accelerate our abilities, trying to either integrate the platforms so they're all in one or have them interoperable. Um, and that's really probably Steve's challenge more than mine. And then cyber, uh, is, as we all know, is extraordinarily important, especially for, um, you know, uh, DHA, which, you know, entrusts secrets and we have uh, service members with secret security clearances and such. Um, but the expectation is there. And then the expectation on the readiness side is the same. Um, the military services, they want to see all of this uh, capability as much as possible downrange. And they, they're in an environment where potentially they could have breaks in, in access to the Internet. So then that, that information needs to be collected at the, at the point of inter, injury and then somehow uploaded uh, to the, you know, a cloud-based system or, or, or some kind of uh, server farm type system where then that information is fully integrated. For the provider, you know, the healthcare teams, it's a real challenge because with all of this information coming in and, and making sure that it's usable to actually partner with the patients in making their healthcare decisions, that's key. Because, you know, if it just rolls into a database and can't be used or shared with the patient in, in real time or near real time, then, you know, patients will know and, and they expect that. Right. So I think that the increase on digital is also potentially creating some opportunities for hiring and recruiting. Mr. Wallace, do you see an impact on helping recruit top talent uh, and retaining talent in your organization based on this big shift to digital and, and now enabling more folks to work from more places? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's, you know, the past year has proven the fact that, you know, people can work from, you know, nearly anywhere. Obviously, they, they have to deal with time zone differences, that kind of thing. But, you know, whether a, whether a, uh, an employee was just down the street or, or several states away or whatever, I know on, on my team specifically, I had several folks that as the pandemic started, they scattered to go be with family, that kind of thing, and in different parts of the country. And, and, you know, you could always theorize before, but now you have living proof and, and information um, that shows you that, uh, you know, organizationally we can function, we being the, the larger department and, and, frankly, IT world, in this kind of in this kind of construct. I think there will always be need for human, person-to-person, -person, uh, you know, physical face-to-face -face interactions, um, but I think it is a bit less critical now. So what this is allowing us to do is open up the aperture. Um, you know, this is headquartered out of, out of Fort Meade. And, you know, that, that is a very tough job market um, for the employers uh, because, you know, there's a lot of competition there, uh, both in the government and in the private sector. And so by allowing us to sort of open up our aperture a little bit more, you know, we can, we can go, you know, nationwide and start pulling in folks from, from all different portions, you know, of the country. Now, in terms of retention, it presents some challenges there too, right, because a lot of other organizations are moving in that kind of in that same direction. The other side of the coin beyond just the the, the, uh, the remote work capacity of all of this is as we are changing out, you know, the way that we approach business and, the you know, the tool sets that we are using and, and going more, you know, cloud and software oriented and, and with a less of a focus um, 
uh, you know, across the board, not just at DISA, but across the board, less of a focus on infrastructure that becomes more commoditized. You know, it's, it's moving the workforce in the direction of being much more software-oriented, uh, coding-oriented, and retooling the talent that we have, as well as focusing on the, the talent that we need to recruit as time goes on. So, um, you know, there's... Uh, it, it, there's a lot of benefits to what what has happened, but it's also shifted some of the challenges around maybe into different spaces than what we had before. And we just we need to adapt, and and uh, and we'll definitely do that. Yeah, oh, that's great. It's uh, definitely a competitive market out there to recruit and retain talent, and I think all the organizations are feeling that right now. And uh, and those that uh, are embracing digital. Uh, recruiting to get the word out and talk about all the great opportunities as well as, you know, capabilities on the inside that are available to the workforce are seemingly doing better. So uh, hopefully we can uh, go ahead. No, based on your statement there too, if I could, you know, if I could tack on to that, one of the things that I, I, you know, that we used to say previously, but it's uh, more important than ever is the, the DOD from a recruitment and a retention perspective offers a challenge set that you're not going to find anywhere else. And that's the, in, frankly, the coolest part about working in the, in the Department of Defense is, you know, it's, it's the, frankly, the largest enterprise in the world. And, you know, the challenges are like no other and, and the, the benefits and the rewards from, you know, seeing what you do and, and the people that uh, benefit from, you know, the work that we put in is, is second to none. So it's, it is, uh, it's really a blessing working in the department these days. Yep, understood. You've got uh, scale, security, uh, global uh, operations, all sorts of great things to work with. So it, it it's great to to be a partner of that environment and you know really see all the great missions that uh, both of you uh, get to contribute to. So so maybe to to close out, um, you know, I'd like to seek some practical advice for our audience here. What's one thing that uh, our attendees can begin to do, maybe even this week, to improve their digital experiences? Um, you know, quick win, uh, do something that um, will delight the users and please management all at the same time uh, by going digital. Dr. Pincus, what are your thoughts? Please management by going digital. Um, interesting. Uh, <laughs> let me go back to your, your former question, which is, the ability to provide specialty care where there's not access is, is a big deal when you're talking about um, both patient and provider satisfaction and being able to recruit providers who, who maybe even are uh, wanting to work part-time and so not lose that, that capability. In terms of where we're going digitally, I, I think that it's really, I mean, the vision is the smartphone of healthcare, right, where everything is integrated uh, or interoperable, um, where you have data that uh, uh, can be mined with predictive analytics. So with predictive analytics, the idea is that um, patients will have a certain profile, whether it be genetic or genomic, and treatments uh, could be, uh, you know, uh, tailored to the specific individual. Um, so, so these are exciting things that are all occurring at the same time. Um, and I, I anticipate that what we'll see is, is leapfrogs in certain, in certain uh, capabilities um, over time. And, and it, it's going to be a challenge to keep up, but it's, it's going to be an exciting one. Um, one thing that I did when you said one thing that folks could do today, we actually have some really pretty interesting um, uh, 
uh, mobile apps right now that DHA sponsors for you know, shared decision-making over contraception, which is important to our female service members if they deploy. We uh, saw that providers were having uh, stress since we have a provider resilience toolkit. These are all on, on you know, the storefronts and, and the app settings that you can get on your, on your smartphone. We have an antidepressant medication adherence app. So, you know, providers and healthcare teams are going to have to get savvy as to what patients are actually accessing. Um, because they're going to come in and they're going to say, I'm using this tool, I'm using that tool. We have to be prepared to adapt to um, the, the, the technology they bring in, but also help them make good medical decisions as well. Uh, Mr. Wallace, your closing thoughts and, and one thing that we could do this week to go digital even stronger? Sure. So um, I think that uh, I'll start with the, you know, one thing we could do to, to make digital even stronger. And, and that is, and it's been mentioned a couple times during the discussion, but, you know, continue to focus on that user experience and, um, you know, a, a, a positive user experience backed by good security practices behind that, but, but not, you know, many times we do security because it makes us feel good and not because there's actual provable benefit to it. And by doing that, we degrade the user experience and drive them in a direction to go to shadow IT or, or that kind of thing, right? So, so really think about that and, and how, that, um, you know, how that actually impacts the, the outcome for the user would be, would be, the, um, would be my advice. And, and my ask, uh, if I may, my ask to the, to the audience is, is help us with the same thing in return, right? Um, a lot of times when, when we are looking at things, uh, you know, no matter what the topic, we see it, you know, perhaps through our lens and, and having an external lens that is, is coming in a straightforward and honest way, I guess I'll put it to you that way, um, that is looking for the benefit of the department, not the benefit of the bottom line, the benefit of the department. Those are the kind of conversations that, that I love to have and I think we need to have. So, and, and, and it helps us, you know, uh, helps us move forward by getting those other and external perspectives. Very well said. And, uh, one of our mottos at Adobe is uh, digital experiences that put people first and, and really looking at kind of the, the end-to-end workflow, starting with the people, wherever they happen to be, whether they're inside or outside your organization, uh, consumers, businesses, uh, other uh, government organizations, and kind of you know, not just walking in their shoes, but looking at what they need and then kind of following the IT trail back to the, the data centers uh, versus I think a, a lot of other organizations always kind of start with just the looking from the data center looking out. Uh, but it's you know, very important, as you said, to, to get that user experience feedback on what's working, what isn't, uh, and what they need. And, and, you know, great ideas come from all over. Uh, so it's great to hear your organizations uh, looking for that feedback. Uh, I've very much enjoyed our uh, panel conversation today. Um, our next speaker, I'd like to hand it over to Amy to talk a bit about Adobe and Terasoft and the joint enterprise license agreement that's in place. Uh, during that time, if there are questions that come up for any of our panelists, please do type them in. Uh, I see we have some already that we'll get to those uh, after Amy provides an overview of the Jello. So, Amy, take it away. Very good. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. And our government speakers on the panel, I appreciate your insights. It's extremely valuable for the team, I think, here on this call. So hopefully I can enlighten everybody else just as much as you have. 
So thank you for introducing me. My name is Amy Tyra. I am the Adobe Jella Program Manager here at Kerasoft. Um, today, I wanted to share a high-level overview with the folks on um, this call on what the Adobe Jella, or otherwise known as the Joint Enterprise License Agreement, offers its current enrollees. And, you know, hope it helps um, other organizations and other folks on the industry side see kind of how it can support your missions and visions going into um, supporting your enterprises. So I'm going to go over a high level on contract details, um, some of the Adobe value added benefits that the industry team does to support the program, um, go over some of the use cases on the uh, value added benefits and kind of specifics on what we're doing to support um, what the Jella means for enrollees, what's what's in it for you guys, um, and then kind of give you a little sneak peek um, on the Adobe Jella 3 future. So to start, everyone wants to know, if you're not already an enrollee on this call, who is enrolled today? Um, the Adobe Jella by contract definition today includes a select few agencies, um, Army, Air Force, DISA, OSD, JSP, JCS, DHA, DCMA, and DMEA. Um, well, the Jella is considered open to ordering for all DOD. The buy-in to the agreement actually can only be established after some initial discussions with the DISA PMO, which is where our PM sits, um, the OEM, which is Adobe here in this case. Um, the Jella was awarded in 2016 as a base plus four option year contract. And important to note for enrollees on this call today, we are in the final option year of the agreement, but um, we understand, you know, DISA's intent to establish a follow-on agreement. So that's very exciting news. Current products available on the contract are for enrollees include unlimited access to both Acrobat Pro and AEM forms, as well as discounted pricing and access to Adobe Creative Cloud, both the full suite as well as single applications and Adobe's print and published business unit products for those that are using Captivate or Presenter or Cold Fusion. So with that being said, high-level overview on the contract. Um, the next few slides, I'm just going to be talking to a high level on what the Jella offerings are, what they include, um, and some of the more specific use cases we have on how we support the contract on a program aspect, as well as a customer support-related aspect. So what does Jella offer? We have some amazing resources available to enrollees on this contract, um, including things that are on this slide, an all-access on-demand training pass for enrollees. It's a portal that our Captivate Prime team Adobe built specifically for um, enrollees on this contract. The training encompasses a variety of opportunities to get educated on Acrobat Pro, AEM Forms, as well as AEM Designer and Creative Cloud. In addition to training on the contract, um, another value-added benefit we have is that the Jella includes 10 service packs. Now, you're probably wondering what's a service pack, right? Each pack is inclusive of a, a bucket of hours to support a customer's AEM forms deployment, um, as well as OEM resources to support that customer's effort. The packs are typically leveraged for customers with larger scale AEM forms deployments, um, but, you know, we've seen everything in the past and depending on the complexity of the project or the program will depend on what resources at the vendor we can dedicate to this effort. Um, there are a total of 
10 service packs on the Jella today, one for each agency and two on reserve for any additional um, agencies that might need to use them. As we add agencies to the contract, obviously, um, the, there, there will be um, additional offerings for those agencies as well. So the next thing in the value-added benefits scale is that the Jella offers both a technical support manager and a technical account manager um, that's from the OEM, which is Adobe. They are all tier one support. They're amazing resources. And wherever the Kerasoft or the um, reseller prime can't support on a technical level, we have amazing resources, a tier one at Adobe that can support customers. And then finally, um, something kind of a little bit more I'll talk about on the following slides. We do have support internally at distribution, which is Kerasoft for product demonstrations, um, download and install support and tips and tricks sessions for those customers that are really just trying to get better educated on how to get the best use out of their Adobe licenses. And to piggyback actually off of some of those Adobe Jello value added benefits I had mentioned on the previous slide, there are some examples here on this slide of where the industry team supports those customers. So. Our technical teams, uh, both at the OEM and here on the distribution side, Kerasoft, can assist with transitioning customers on the BPA from Adobe's serialized licensing model to Adobe's next generation licensing model, either towards um, what Adobe calls feature-restricted licensing or named user deployments, depending on the complexity of your environment, um, internet access, or capabilities will determine the best path forward, and the industry team can certainly help you determine that. And in addition to that, we, we work with various commands within the DOD, um, in particular, HRC, Air Force, um, DHA, and JSP, just to name a few, that uh, we're transitioning on a large scale um, and to get ramped up on their new deployments on Adobe's administrator console, which is where Adobe's next generation licensing will sit. Kerasoft and Adobe will also offer resources to support custom training days as well, and custom webinars for enrollees with more specific needs, which is kind of unique because, you know, instead of just having a standard set calendar, we have the ability uh, to work with our commands and our subcommands on this contract, depending on what they need their users to get educated on to customize Adobe Days for them. And then the last thing is help us help you, right? We want the DOD, we want DHA and DISA, um, for example, to be able to share amazing use cases on how they're using our technology to support their missions and go digitally strong um, and digitally forward, which is where we are today in the, the technology world. But we would love to hear your use cases and um, be able to nominate some of your organizations for some of these government and public sector awards that are out there. And the follow-on is what do you get as a Jella enrollee, right? What do you guys as, as a user or a buyer, what do you care about, right? Higher volume discounts. It's a very important aspect of buying into these enterprise agreements. You want to know what, what you're saving. Um, customers have license management, can manage their licenses independently, um, apart from the Acrobat Pro and AEM forms licenses that are managed on the enterprise side. There's decentralized purchasing capabilities on this contract that every organization has the authority to do without going through additional red tape, with the exception of specific RFQ protocols and processes that are already in place from those headquarters um, or from the headquarters. 
We have a bunch of, as I had mentioned on previous slides, tech support resources not available via other contract vehicles um, like the on-demand training portal. And then um, dedicated teams, not only on the Kerasoft side, on a technical and on a customer support related aspect, but as well as on the reseller prime side as and the um, Adobe end as well. So a lot of support for you guys and we're happy to support any of your efforts. And then so last but not least, very exciting for me to actually talk about here. Um, although I'm, I can't give too many details around this aspect, the Jella 3 future. What does the Jella 3 include? What are we hearing that it might include? Um, we know today Acrobat and AEM forms are still going to be a part of the Jella 3. Um, there is still going to be a mandatory continued uh, purchase and buy-in requirement for Jella 3 um, as there is today. Um, there are customers, as in the Jella 2, all purchased um, into the BPA, what they considered their enterprise or full-time employee account for both their Acrobat and AEM forms. The good news for that is that every user under those agencies defined on the contract get unlimited access to those products. And because they're paid for at the command level, at the enterprise level, the user doesn't accrue a bill or invoice for that. So next, with probably a lot of questions, everyone's probably wondering what products might be included on the Jella 3. Um, as I mentioned, Creative Cloud and Acrobat and AEM Forms are all included today. But what we understand is there's chatter internally um, about additions such as Adobe Stock, Adobe Sign, and Substance under Adobe's digital media business unit being considered for the Jella 3. But then in addition to those applications um, under Adobe's digital experience business unit, we anticipate, again, can't speak for 100% certainty, but we anticipate the addition of below-the-line purchase availability for AEM sites assets and analytics and Adobe Target. And then a couple of other support related items that we understand might be included in the next iteration of the Jella are managed services as a deployment option for Adobe's digital experiences products and then premier support, uh, US citizen access for TAMs and additional services. We understand the sensitivity of the DOD um, and, and know that we do have US support uh, for you. Um, and then finally, one of the bigger things on this Jella 3 iteration um, that I wanted to highlight was with the recent um, Fourth Estate Network Optimization Initiative, also known as the Fourth 4 ENL, we anticipate the Jella 3 um, adding potentially other defense agencies not already enrolled on the BPA that now will roll under essentially the DISN. So there will be some agency ads. Um, I'm not certain who those are, how many there will be in the first year, but we do know that there will be a growth to the Jella 2 for those specific agencies. And so with that being said, that is all I have pertaining to the Jella 2. There's your sneak on the Jella 3, and I will hand it back over to our team and John for follow-on for Q&A. Thank you, Amy. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to partner with you all on uh, making it easier for Adobe software to get out to the mission. Uh, there, there are a lot of details in the, the Jella uh, certainly on the procurement side, on the support side, uh, also on the security side. And we know that that is very important within DOD networks. We've been uh, supporters of uh, PKI and the Common Access Card for a, a very long time for both authentication and digital signatures and, and continue to see that two-factor authentication being very important for you know not only authenticating to sites and uh, providing digital signatures, but just 
is a way to get rid of usernames and passwords that we all have way too many of. So it's great to, to have options like that that we can support. Um, the next generation licensing is also another topic I know that uh, often comes up within our DOD base. Um, we very much appreciate and understand that there are some networks uh, not directly connected or not ever connected to the Internet, and it's very important that our software continue to support the mission in those networks. And those new licensing schemes, uh, especially the feature-restricted licensing, was designed and included a lot of feedback uh, from the extended defense and national security community to make sure that our fan favorites like Acrobat and Photoshop uh, and the other desktop products that we have continue to run uh, in those networks. And the new licensing schemes uh, for that provide a, a very secure yet compliant way to do that that doesn't do callbacks to uh, licensing servers uh, at Adobe like our uh, consumer anti-piracy software mechanisms do. Uh, our enterprise toolkits also allow administrators uh, to really tune our desktop software for the features and needs and group policy and registry settings that you need in your networks, uh, that there may be uh, some areas like public affairs that does want to uh, collaborate externally and use some of our cloud services, and there may be other mission areas that don't, and you want to turn off those capabilities. So those are all included in our enterprise deployment documentation. And we did get some uh, questions that came in on how our software would run on multiple networks and global networks, uh, and I wanted to make sure that we address that, that uh, even though we put the, the word cloud in like the Creative Cloud product name, that, that doesn't imply it only runs on the internet, right? That there are public clouds, the private clouds, and hybrid clouds. Uh, and we do have our desktop software on the joint enterprise license agreement that can run uh, in completely isolated networks. And that next generation licensing capability is something definitely to, to check out as well as the enterprise uh, documentation is a, uh, Definitely appreciated by the system administrators on how to set that up. Uh, and there's a great support team standing by to answer any questions that come up on using Adobe software in DOD networks. Um, I want to look here and see uh, if there are any other uh, questions. I know we're coming up on the top of the hour here, and I greatly appreciate the partnership that we have with all of our participants today. I found that the conversation was great. Uh, I hope we can do it again sometime because the insights that are coming from all of you are, are fantastic on what the shift to digital is really meaning for government and specific for the Department of Defense. So again, thank you very much. Amy, we appreciate the information on Magella. Uh, Dr. Pincus, Mr. Wallace, it's great to hear what's going on with digital experience and the mission. And I think we will wrap up. So again, thank you all. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Take John. care. Thanks, all. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information on how Kerasoft or Adobe can assist your agency, please visit www.kerasoft.com or email us at adobe at Thanks again for listening and have a great day.